If you like unusual destinations, if you want to see somewhere a little bit off the beaten track before it becomes hugely popular, you have got to go to Uzbekistan quickly. Thank you for downloading. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a weekly series looking at unfamiliar places across the world, an aspect of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, Ian Oliver, also known as the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Brit with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture, and the whys behind travel itself. So join me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. So what have you been up to recently? I hear there's a bit of a cold snap in the northwestern quarter of the world. Hope you're all wrapped up warm and not venturing out unless you absolutely have to. It's quite interesting that last year, when we in the UK had a severe cold snap, I was out of the country then too, though that time I was in Poland where it was even colder. This time I've been working my way southeast to mm, less bitter places. I've just spent a week in Lebanon where there was snow up in the mountains, but by the coast it was a balmy 17 degrees Celsius. Yeah, I've just spent a week in Lebanon. It's uh, not words you hear very often outside of some dubious news report from the Middle East. But despite the main subject of this podcast being another country in Asia, much further east, I can happily tell you that Lebanon is very much open for business and tourism. I had a quite a restful last week or so. Uh, it's been really good to get out of my sedentary life in the UK, even if my time in Lebanon hasn't been much different to that back home. Sometimes it's merely the change of scene that does wonders for you, not necessarily the change of action. I mean, to be fair, though, I was also eating and drinking far less than I do back home. I think a lot of the time I do it through boredom, and being away is still exciting. Even if I spent one day doing nothing more than walking around Beirut... These were still streets I'd never walked before, so it still felt it still felt exciting. I also, well, keeping to a budget is probably the wrong terminology, as I haven't specifically set one. But on my travels, I tend to be very careful. I keep a specific recording of my spending. And while I may blow it sometimes on a case of, what the hell, sometimes I feel I deserve it. I mean, it's not every day, for instance, that you find a craft brewery in a country like your Lebanon, and visiting it gave me an excuse to go to a small town I wouldn't have otherwise even thought of going to, a place called Batroun on the coast in the north of the country. It doesn't even have an entry on wiki travel. But, see, back in the UK, I might have done this maybe three times a week, every week. Here, in Lebanon, I did it once. I never quite got a handle on the cost of things. Um, everything seemed to be slightly cheaper than the UK, but it depends largely on what you're buying. For the equivalent of £2, I got a lemonade from an artisan lemonade cafe in Batroun, but the minibus back to Beirut, maybe an hour and a half's journey, was the same price. I wonder if maybe I'm wanting and specifically seeking things to be cheaper than they really are? And that said, I had a bowl of hummus, flatbread and far more salad than I was capable of eating for £3 um, the other day. So maybe it depends on where you look. Uh, certainly with regard to Lebanon, the food is quite a draw. 
Um, this is the land of hummus and falafel, for instance, if you want to use that topical V word. If not, there's shawarma and kebab. I also, I noticed that whenever I buy stuff, people kept giving me little things for free. So I had a shawarma the other day, and as I was leaving, they gave me a free falafel. When I bought a couple of small chocolate cakes on Sunday, don't ask, I was given a free biscuit. It's nothing major, but I think it's a nice touch. I'll probably talk in depth about Lebanon in a future pod or blog post, but there's a couple of things to mention now as a kind of brief overview, because I think I find them quite interesting. I mean, certainly it's a country that's changed from when I grew up. In the 80s, the news was full of reports from the Lebanese Civil War. And of course, the whole Terry Waite, uh, Brian Anderson, was his name Brian Anderson? Um, hostage story that played out for years. There's actually not many scars left from the war that's visible. Uh, a couple of derelict buildings, but that's pretty much it. In these days, Lebanon is a perfectly safe country to visit. Well, I mean, that's not entirely true so far if found four ways to die. The most likely is being part of a road traffic accident. It's not that the locals drive badly here, though I have seen some interesting race tax style driving. Rather, it's the interesting application of the laws of the road. In the UK, red lights mean stop. In much of the USA, red lights mean you can turn right, a facet of US road rules that I've had arguments with with my American friends because, right, I don't care how much easier it is as a car driver. As a pedestrian, this is a bad thing because when I cross a road, you know, I like to do so knowing nothing's even going to look like it's going to hit me. But I digress. In Lebanon, it appears that a red light means it's less likely you'll be able to pull out as there will be cars in the way. And that's not to mention the scooters who weave in and out of everywhere. I mean, to be fair, it has a sense of organised chaos to it all, and the traffic in the cities is usually pretty solid, so it's more a case of slipping through between cars that might move. It's certainly not the unbridled chaos that is South and Southeast Asia, but in general it's best to ignore the lights. Oh, and the other issue as a pedestrian is that when cars are parked, they do so on the pavement, meaning you have to wander into the road. This assumes there is a pavement in the first place. Beirut in particular is not a pedestrian-friendly city. And when cars are parked on the road, it's often bumper to bumper. And I don't mean that in a vague metaphorical sense either. If it were a game of snooker, the referee would be checking for touching balls. The second way to die in Lebanon is falling from a great height. It's a very old country. The ruins at Byblos alone cover about 6,000 years of history. This means there's a lot of old towers, castles, buildings, forts, etc. scattered across the country. And you can happily visit them and explore at your leisure. There's nothing stopping you clambering over the stones to gain a better vantage point. This includes fences. Oh look, there's a spring down there that was made into a well about 2000 BC. Let's peer down and take a closer look. Oh look, this fort was built on an island right on the rocks below. See how far down it goes. You get the idea. At one of the sites, Balbek, in the far east of the country, there is actually one bit of the uh, battlements where... There is a small fence. There is a small fence on one small section of the wall. And then you just step three steps to the right, and there is no fence, and the drop still exists. One suspects that someone fell down that hole at some point in time, so they put a fence up. But in a sort of, I don't know, um, jobs-worthy way, they only put the fence up in that spot. The two other ways to die are pretty much self-imposed. 
My research showed that the tap water in Beirut was, quote, only slightly dodgy, just heavily chlorinated, unquote, but my Airbnb host said that even he doesn't drink it, so your mileage may vary on that one. Meanwhile, the barefoot backpacker is wearing shoes here because there is rubble and broken glass and stuff pretty much everywhere. I had a fun conversation in the brew pub in Batroon about that very fact. I don't know if my bank card will work, I'd said, as I'd splurged almost as much as the cash I was carrying, so paying my card made sense. That's okay, whispered the lady who served me. You can probably run faster than me. Not in these shoes. I tend to prefer to run barefoot anyway, I said. Ah, she replied. Yeah, I wouldn't do that here. Tetanus job, anyone? By the time you listen to this course, I won't be in Lebanon anymore. I will be far away to the east. But I thought it was an interesting subject and country to talk about because it's... I see it occasionally on travel Twitter, but it's not a country that many people really associate with holidays and tourism. And I just wanted to give a, a brief overview of my time there and to let you know that I didn't die. Apart from travel, the other thing that I've done recently is publish a blog post about toxic masculinity. There's a bit of a jump. As I mentioned on my social media at the time, while I've always been politically minded, it rarely comes out in my posts that directly. While political commentary is something I've done before, it's usually been for like the Ungagged podcast, which is designated as a political podcast, rather than for my own site. Going forward, though, it's probably something I need to do a bit more. In fact, while I've got your attention, if being political doesn't interest you, feel free to fast forward for a minute or so, or, well, three or four minutes, actually. One of the reasons that I started this pod was because I felt it was a better way to vent my politics. My blog is itself definitely more travel-focused, even if it covers political topics like war, revolution, industrial decline, and beer. Hey, don't knock it, beer can be very political. However, the older I get, the more, I don't know, angry maybe is the right word? I've become... The more I feel the world is going, to coin a phrase, to hell in a handcart. And it's people like me that are driving it there, privileged, middle-class, middle-aged white men, basically. The sort of people I went to school with. There is a caveat there. One of my teenage friends later made a career out of being a reporter with the BBC, while another seems to be quite active in pro-Yemen and pro-Palestine circles. Mind you, they weren't the ones doing Latin, Greek and ancient history at A-level. Yes, it was that sort of school. I even counted amongst one of my friends someone who later turned to quiz shows but could so easily have been a rival to Nigel Farage. Privilege. It's sometimes seen as a dirty word, but really it's more of a statement of fact. It's simply a way of describing how easy we fit in, how easy we get on in life. Every single one of us has privilege to some degree, but the effect is cumulative. Being British offers more privilege, makes it easier to get around the world than, say, being Senegalese. Being white offers more privilege than being black African. Being male offers more privilege than being female, but both offer more privilege than being trans. Being a British white female offers two levels of privilege, as does being a British black male. But being a British white male would win that poker game. Throw in aspects of class and background, sexuality and the like, and you end up with, well, it is literally like a game of poker played not just for money, gender gap anyone, but for something far more, human rights, freedoms and individuality. And the thing is, that game will always be played while the people with power, with influence, are allowed to dictate the rules, to divide and rule. Obviously, the more privilege you have, the more influence you can wield, since the basically more society will listen to you. And people are inherently both selfish and protective. They'll seek to surround themselves with like-minded people. So if you have a society controlled by white, middle-class, middle-aged men, they will, by nature, surround themselves with people like them, white, middle-class, middle-aged men. 
Ironically, therefore, short of a bloody revolution, which, to be honest, my mother is convinced I'll lead at least one day, you may have grasped by now that my mother has a very strange grasp on who I am. It's people like that, like me, who have the best chance of making any realistic change, maybe. Indeed, one could argue that it's even our responsibility to do so. How will history judge us? I mean, not that it matters, because I'll be long dead by then, but really, surely... We need to be on the right side of history, driving change, ensuring equality. Which is, to be honest, bloody annoying, since I have difficulty changing my bedsheets, never mind the social constructs of a traditional society. But here I stand, I can do no other, as Jim Hacker once quoted. Even if no one reads my blogs, even if no one listens to the podcasts of a ranty Brit, at least I can say I've tried. What are you doing to change the world? Yeah, it sounded patronising, didn't it? And it's, it's OK, it's your choice. Do whatever you feel comfortable with and don't let me tell you what to do, but, uh, you know. Anyway, the other really unusual thing is that the post in question isn't really travel-related. Rather, it's a standalone piece about my feelings and angst about society as a wider concept. The most amusing thing that's come out of it, though, is the number of people who read the post and commented to me more about the fact that I was wearing a Princesses Have More Fun t-shirt and therefore being happy for me that I was able to express my own personality without fear rather than checking the content of the post itself. Or maybe I just have friends who like to see me wear women's clothing. I don't know. I mean, I don't think my hairy, gnarled legs look that good and I'm far too gangly to pull off the look properly, but maybe those things are just in my head, you know? Anyway... So, Uzbekistan. Even hearing the word Uzbekistan makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck. Almost four years on, I still can't quite believe we managed to travel to such a wonderful country. If you're looking for stunning architecture, heaps of history, amazing food and the kindest people, then Uzbekistan is the place for you. Unusually, it was my husband who first wanted to go. It took a while to convince me, but I'm so glad that he did. We travelled on a small group tour, visiting Tashkent, Samarkand, Bukhara and Kiva. I'd say that Bukhara and Kiva were my favourites, although I would definitely go back to all of them. Places of particular note are the Rajasthan in Samarkand, Shara Zinda and an amazing carpet shop in Bukhara. I also found driving through the desert between Bukhara and Kiva to be inspiring. A vastness that only deserts can really bring. It was a place that really kick-started a wanderlust I'd kept under wraps until then. We gasped at endless blue tiles, had many, many pictures taken with locals and visiting Uzbeks, climbed minarets and relaxed with beer while the sun went down. We visited some beautiful mosques and palaces and watched many larders drive round filled to the brim with people. The mixture of cultures and leftovers from the Soviet era creates a unique vibe that I haven't really been able to find anywhere else. The people are so resourceful. The food is also wonderful, in particular the plov, beetroot salads and their famous bread non, a taste I've only been able to find once since in an Uzbek cafe in Estonia. I'm so pleased that Uzbekistan is getting the attention it finally deserves. It's the centre of the Silk Road, a history that has travel from start to finish. All I can really say is go. I'm desperate to return myself. That was Amy Loxton from The Non-Backpacker, giving a brief overview of her visit, not long after mine by the sound of it. I went in September 2014. You'll hear later from people who've been more recently. But as basically the main draw in Uzbekistan is the history, what I saw isn't going to change any time soon. It's a country that's promoting itself quite well at the moment. It's recently announced a change in its visa regime for a number of white middle-class countries to make it much easier to enter, which is cool as when I visited I had to photocopy every single page of my passport for them in order to get a visa. And I have a larger 48-page passport too. They got an awful lot of blank pages. 
The biggest change in recent years, as my guests will allude to, is with the money. Back in 2014, the government was controlling the local currency, the Uzbek Som, fixing its rate and preventing free exchange. This was coupled with a bloody-minded refusal by them to accept that the real purchasing power of the currency had dropped. This meant two things. The exchange rate on the black market, one US dollar to 3,000 som, was considerably better than the exchange rate offered by banks, which was one dollar to 2,300 som. And secondly, the largest value note in circulation was worth 1,000 som. Since larger denomination US dollar notes tended to be preferred, this meant changing money tended to take a while. It also meant that everyone, most of the time, was carrying around large bundles of notes with them, usually held together with elastic bands. In many countries, travel advice is not to flash around wads of cash. In Uzbekistan, yeah, didn't really get the choice. However, as everyone's more or less in the same boat, the only money-related crime in general practice was that the real black market rate that the locals got was nearer to $1 to 3,300 some. Also, obtaining currency was much harder when I was there. There were ATMs, but few and far between. There was precisely one, I think, in the whole of Bukhara. This all affected locals too. I had tales of people buying cars carrying wheelbarrows of notes. I stayed mostly in backpacker hostels. As an observation, I noticed that the type of backpacker here was slightly different to other places. They tended to be a little older, not as party-seeking, but equally not as cliquely or as quiet. Maybe I got lucky, but I definitely felt the other travellers I came across were friendly, open, but not in your face. A bit like me, maybe. The hostels in general were quite similar. Slightly in the back streets, built around a central courtyard, and often two-level affairs. These central courtyards served as the social area, fine on my visit in mid-September, not sure how they would feel in mid-January. The hostel I was in in Bukhara served a pretty good breakfast too, to be fair. In Fagana, in the east of the country, I stayed in what maybe these days be termed an Airbnb. It was again slightly off-centre, located in an apartment inside an old Soviet housing block. The apartment itself was very spacious and homely. That's something I quite like about Soviet architecture. It's, let's say, ugly on the outside, but perfectly functional and efficient. I ended up there by virtue of finding very little accommodation online. Not entirely sure why. I remain unconvinced to this day that a city of 190,000 people has no hotels. Maybe it's better now. It's almost certainly going to be easier. But certainly if you go off the main drag in this country, nobody goes to the Fergana Valley. As a tourist, things do become more work to arrange. Another traditional Soviet building housed the hotel in Nukas in the far west of the country, at the time possibly the only hotel in Nukas. The building felt like faded opulence, like it had once been something grand but was now gathering mothballs waiting for... Well, it's not exactly a hotbed of either tourism or industry anymore anyway, so who knows? Peeling wallpaper, grotty furnishings, a bathroom with stains so entrenched they'd become part of the colour scheme, and the water pressure varied from low to non-existent, which caused confusion at one point as the taps suddenly came on without warning or reason. It's hard to know whether a tap is on or off when no water comes out. Regardless of type, the decor inside accommodation can be quite... Uh, niche? The hostel I was in in Samarkand was filled with, I'm going to say, stuff. It looked very busy and lived in, with tables in alcoves, a big plastic wall hiding the clothes washing area, lots of trees, and a parrot, all scattered around its central courtyard. I'm not sure how many floors it had, but everywhere I looked were iron staircases leading upwards, clinging to the walls like shoots of metallic ivy. The dorm I was in was slightly underground, and, with the aircon, definitely the best place to be in the mid-afternoon heat. It was a four-bed dorm, no bunks, and all seemingly empty, but the lack of people was more than compensated for by the, uh, clutter. 
let's just call it memorabilia would be a good word. Junk might be another. Pictures, ornaments, board games, even an old radio, all seemingly from the communist era. David Dickinson would have been in his element. Now, food. Central Asian food in general is uh, reasonably average, I'm going to say. A three-course meal of it would be hard-pushed to win come dine with me, but that doesn't mean it's not worth trying. A stereotypical dish from Uzbekistan is plov. It's a regional variant of the more southern pilaf, and it's a meal of meat, onions and vegetables, all mixed in one pot with rice, vaguely like paella, except that it really isn't. It's additionally flavoured with spices like cloves and pepper. I had lakman a couple of times for breakfast. That's one of those hearty meals that really fills you up. It's never been quite sure if it's a stew or a soup. Meat, often lamb, potatoes, onions, vegetables, noodles, oddly, and spices all in a bowl of broth. Another common foodstuff sold in cafes, chaikanas, and restaurants is manti, a selection of dumplings filled mainly with lamb and onion. Be aware these tend to be very oily and fatty. Other foodstuffs sold in markets include shashlik and samosa. These are exactly what you'd imagine. Shashlik is grilled meat, again lamb mutton, served on a skewer with peppers and onions, while samosa is the local version of the universal pasty, uh, like empanadas in South America, again filled with mainly meat and potatoes, and probably onion. You can gather by now that Uzbekistan is particularly fond of any food that includes meat and onion. I can be more specific, the meat is usually lamb or mutton, it's not a good place to be vegetarian. Indeed, my travel companion to the Aral Sea, Marta, was vegetarian and had a discussion with the host family in Moynak around whether chicken and fish were vegetarian foods or not. It's really quite strange to think in some cultures they still don't think of fish as meat. I have to say, though, I was on overall slightly disappointed with some of the street food in Uzbekistan. Having come from Kyrgyzstan, where it was barely possible to walk down the road without bumping into a samosa or shashlik stella, either from a kiosk or a chaikana, in much of Uzbekistan it was just that bit harder to seek out. Except ice cream for some reason. Ice cream was everywhere, as was, oddly, popcorn. Even when I did find things like shashlik, I just felt it didn't have quite the same pull as the food over the border. The other issue I noticed was that Uzbekistan is a country that does lunch. By the time it gets to evening mealtime, even the few chaikanas and street stalls you did find have wound down and virtually the only thing you can get is shashlik. For example, you'd have thought in a huge bazaar like Chorsu Bazaar in Tashkent there would be more evening options. Apparently not. In addition, the roadside stalls on long bus trips tended to offer me little more than discus-shaped bread and watermelon. It may have been because of the time of year I went. Now, alcohol. Of course, it's me who's... Uh, speaking this, obviously. Uh, I didn't have much of it while I was there, surprisingly. I did go with a couple of backpackers to a pub in Bukhara called uh, The Pub. It was very much a backstreet place, a solitary large room with tables and benches, a bar at one end and a large TV at the other, that played whatever was on the whim of the local bar staff, which was usually ballady music videos. The beer on draft was a local Bukhara beer called Aziz, A-Z-I-Z. Um, not sure how strong it was, but it cost 3,000 som for half a litre, so that works out about 60p a pint. It was hoppy, quite 70s, traditional taste, drying, light, sweet, so not too bad. Meanwhile, over in the far west, you may be unsurprised to hear that vodka is quite popular. While around the Aral Sea, in the region of Karakalpakstan, the tour guide had us share a bottle of the local vodka brand, which was uh, Karatol. I found it strong, smooth, and a little sweet. Now, transport. 
as befits quite a large country, Uzbekistan is very slightly smaller than Sweden and kind of a similar shape, there's a number of transport options to cross the country with. It never occurred to me to fly across the country, though it's definitely possible, but rather most of my trips are on the road. One of the most ubiquitous across the country, and indeed Central Asia as a whole, is the share taxi. This is one of those marvellous concepts created to fill a hole and which would never catch on in the UK due to our fetish for both timetables and personal space. It's kind of the missing link between a normal taxi and a minibus. They lurk around bus taxi stations, and the idea is that people find one going in roughly the right direction, then wait around until enough people have turned up to fill the remaining seats, at which point it leaves. How long that takes is undetermined. On popular routes you can leave almost immediately, whereas on others there is a way round it if you don't fancy waiting. See, the pricing structure is quite complex. You negotiate individually with the driver. So if you imagine that the driver has in mind a price for the whole car to make the trip, and he tries to obviously get everyone to pay proportionally more than this, um, then, well, obviously this has the disadvantage of there being no set fixed price for the route, but the advantage is that if between the passengers waiting you decide you don't want to wait for the taxi to fill and would rather leave sooner, you simply then negotiate further with the driver to split the cost of the empty seats between you, so each of you pays slightly more, but you leave there and then. Prices are generally quite cheap even so. I mean, my share taxi from Fergana to Tashkent, which is a journey of about maybe five hours, and one that few larger buses take due to the meandering steep mountain passes, cost in the end about 50,000 som, which was under $17, whilst the one from Fergana to the nearby city of Kokhand, about 90 minutes away, only cost 10,000 som. Conversely, the lumbering, slow, bumpy bus back from Kokhand to Fergana took about two and a half hours and cost 5,500 som. Oddly, some of the intercity coaches aren't exactly fixed in terms of price or schedule either. And this is what happened to me in Bukhara. Where'd you go? Tashkent, say the clamouring hordes of people. It's hard to know who's a tout and who's a driver in this mad throng. Samarkand, I reply. This way, this way, come, this one leaves soon, says one chap, directing me towards a mostly filled coach. How soon, I naively ask. His reply, with his accent, could be 15 or 50. I couldn't tell, so I ask him to clarify. One five minutes, he confirms. There then follows a bit of negotiation over the price, something I've never been comfortable with, but it's very much the way of the world here. I'm not sure quite how that would work in the UK, trying to negotiate with the driver of National Express coach knock a fiver off the fare. Maybe that's something for a UK version of extreme cheapskates, but it doesn't rock my world. The trip from Bukhara to Samarkand is scheduled to be four hours, and in any case, I can tell a little urgency amongst the passengers. There's also a fierce babushka-type person on board with a clipboard, dressed in a bright blue blouse, who seems to be running the roost of the coach, making sure everyone's sitting in the right seats, and chastising the driver and his running staff, who are loading the coach whenever they wander off. In the end, the coach left about 50 minutes after I boarded, not 15. Sometimes, however, things are a little more lax. I ended up taking a somewhat longer trip from Nukas to Bukhara than I had intended or expected. It was supposed to take eight hours. It took 20. Again, I don't know if it's still the case, but certainly when I was there, for safety concerns, long-distance buses weren't allowed to drive through the night. So they pull into what amounts to a service station, which is basically a roadside cafe with several large lounge rooms for food and bed, which is included in the price, though the bed is simply a lot of couches in the rooms. I didn't know this when I boarded the bus. Still, I ended up chatting with a few of the locals on board, including one who had a four-language translation book. He was Karakalpak, so not only did he not speak English or Russian, he didn't even speak Uzbek, but only his local native language. 
Two little observations about road travel in Uzbekistan. Firstly, in many towns and cities, the buses or shared taxis depart from somewhere outside the city centre and in different places depending on where you're heading and partly on how far you're going, so it helps to research beforehand and ask to make sure you're going to the right one. The other is that on many of the journeys that I did, everyone has to get out of the car or bus when it goes through a petrol station. I found out that this is not because they use petrol to power their vehicles in general, but pressurised gas. Literally, gas stations, they're pretty dangerous places. One journey I took, however, was by train, 17 and a half hours from Tashkent to Urgench in Uzbekistan's Midwest, near the town of Kiva. I had a bunk bed in an open cabin. They tend to be pretty common across the ex-Soviet Union, and it's pretty much the only form of transport I can sleep on, and I sleep pretty well on them too. Though if you're in the uppermost bunk, be aware you may find you can't sit up properly on the bed because the luggage rack gets in the way. I'd bought the ticket through my hostel. It seemed far easier to do that and pay a $10 US admin fee than go to the railway station myself and try and buy it, partly because the station was the opposite end of the city, about 8 kilometres away from the hostel, but mainly because, well, me. The ticket cost around 72,000 SOM, or at 24 US dollars. Yeah, that's a steep admin fee. Conversely, you could think of it as a journey over 1,000 kilometres, costing 34 US dollars, and I'd say that was pretty cheap. The train, named the Amu Darya after one of the main rivers of the country, had 18 coaches. I was in coach 14, but at the station, as I was passing coach 8, the guard there said, coach 14 is a bit rubbish. If you pay extra, you can go in this one, it's much better. So there may be opportunities for a dodgy upgrade. I didn't. It's also another way to meet local people, especially for travelling alone. I ended up chatting to four local Uzbeks on the train, one of whom was acting as an interpreter, after a fashion anyway. They were curious as to my presence and impressed that I was seeing as much of Uzbekistan as I was. They were also most interested in my personal life. Was I married? Did I have children? And were very confused when I said that I wasn't. They wanted to know why. I'm not sure there is an answer to that question, really, as I've intimated in a previous podcast. Obviously, the culture is different, so most people would be expected to be married with children by the time they reach 30. It did make a change to look out the window, though, on this train journey at Endless Desert. One other thing to mention, and I don't know if it's generic to Uzbekistan or just specific to Tashkent, but there was quite a bit of security at the station. I had to show my ticket and my passport before I could even enter the building, and then again at the airport-style X-ray machine or metal detectors inside. It's not Israeli levels of security, but it is quite different to the UK. One final generic thing I want to mention is administration. I trust this is something that's become much easier too, but I wanted to give my experiences. Certainly when I was travelling in the region, this was something that concerned tourists. Uh, The main aspect of which uh, I had to bear in mind was to do with registration with the local police within three days of entry into the country, and then to maintain accurate records detailing where I stayed every night. Every night. The only other place I've had to pay attention to this was Transnistria. It's a hangover from communist days, I suspect. Most ex-communist states have abolished this requirement, at least for citizens of countries deemed valuable. I think Kyrgyzstan still required it for those nationalities who needed a visa, but that didn't affect too many incoming tourists. And others like Serbia still had it in theory into the 2010s, but no one ever seemed to check. Uzbekistan was, however, very strict on these matters. Registration is easy if you're staying in a hotel since they register you automatically, but for a homestay type situation, it would depend on your host. Fortunately, in my case, my hosts took care of it, which was just as well since when I looked on the map for the police office in Fergana, um, I couldn't find it in real life. 
I was on what I presumed to be the correct road, which itself took a lot of effort. And while the buildings in the right place appeared to be a cafe, two shops, a large restaurant, and an entryway into the back of a large restaurant and a public toilet, the police office itself was conspicuous by its absence. As for the accurate records, when I checked out of a hostel, etc., I was given a little slip of paper stamped with the place I'd stayed and how long I'd stayed for. Each put together meant my journey across the country could be traced. Getting into the country in the first place was quite bureaucratic too. Even though there was virtually nobody at the border when I crossed it from Kyrgyzstan, uh, I was basically the only person on a minibus from the centre of Osh to come this far, it took me over an hour to cross the border, the vast majority of which was at Uzbek Customs. I had to fill out two copies of a customs declaration form, including listing how much money I'd had. As I was carrying six different currencies and the accepted wisdom amongst the online travel community was to declare everything to the last cent, my form ended up with writing all over it. I was worried this would cause me problems leaving the country. And then I had to have my bag searched, including my tablet computer. They were looking for seditious or pornographic material. The Border Guardian fact looked through all my pictures of the UK for 20 minutes. It may surprise you to know that I don't have any pornography on this computer, apart from pictures I've made myself. Hmm. Uh, when I told the guard this, his response was interesting and somewhat surprising. Oh, that doesn't count. Everyone does that. What? As I left, I looked behind me. It looked like a tour party of Americans was arriving. I'm not sure who I felt more sorry for, the tour group or the border guards. All of which meant leaving Uzbekistan at Tashkent Airport felt weirdly anticlimactic. There wasn't anywhere near the complicated procedure that arriving had been. I had to fill in one copy of the customs declaration form, but that was basically just copied from the one I did on arrival with less money declared. They didn't bother to check up any of the details on it, presumably because I was leaving with less hard currency than I'd arrived in. They didn't see me as a fraudster. And in fact, also, despite keeping a tight hold of them because they were so important, they didn't even check or look at my accommodation slips. I visited pretty much the whole country, from the Fergana Valley to the Aral Sea. Of course, I passed by the Silk Road cities of Samarkand, Bukhara and Kiva. The latter felt a little like some kind of film set preserved in the desert. The other two definitely felt more real and lived in, though even there there was a demarcation between the tourist parts and the local residential parts. There was a definite feel of two towns that didn't quite mix. I wrote a specific blog about the Aral Sea. Um, it's actually a very strange place. It used to be a thriving inland sea like the nearby Caspian, fed by two main rivers, the Amudaria and Syridaria, with towns like Moynak, which were centres of fishing and fish canning. But the Soviets wanted to make the Uzbekistan area into a cotton-growing area to rival parts of the USA, so they diverted the courses of the rivers to allow for irrigation of the plains. And while the cotton industry is still important here, it was never as successful as the original plans. At the same time, due to its remote location, the government also used the Aral Sea as the scene of um, some interesting chemical industry processes. The combination of the two meant that the sea quickly shrank, changing what was once fertile land into a barren, very polluted desert. Now, Moynak is oh, it's one of the most dangerous places in Central Asia. Uh, it's got one of the lowest life expectancies of the entire Soviet Union. Ex-Soviet Union. And the only people who seem to still live there now are children and old people. Everyone who can move out has. The old ships of the fishing and canning industry lie rusting in the sand where they were left when the water receded. And while the Aral Sea itself still does exist, it's now a four-hour drive in a 4 by 4 from Moynak over the old seabed. It's beautiful, if very stark scenery, with only the occasional oil well reminding you that, as humans, we're still trying to make something of this place. 
My other interest in Uzbekistan concerns a period in history that isn't really mentioned that much. There's certainly very little in the country to remind you other than the existence of the cities themselves. Between the height of the Silk Road trade and the Soviet era was a time known as the Great Game, covering much of the 1700s and 1800s. This was when the whole of Central Asia, and what later became known as Uzbekistan in particular, was made up of lots of small tribal city-states like Bukhara and Kokand, and the two great powers at the time, Russia and the UK, were vying for, if not control of them, then certainly influence. For the Russians, it was part of their expansion eastwards, while for the British, it was to create a buffer zone to protect their trading links to and control of India and places in Southeast Asia towards China. Both sides used explorers, map makers, diplomats, religious leaders, and lots of money and guns to persuade the local states to side with them with varying degrees of success. At the end, the British just about made it as far as Afghanistan, whilst the Russians eventually took what later became known as Uzbekistan. But for me, just standing in the main square in somewhere like Bukhara, just knowing how much people had fought in the past over it. Indeed, two two British diplomats were executed here, in the square. The story goes that a third Brit, a bishop sent to secure their release, was only pardoned because he was dressed in full religious gear and the Bukharan leader at the time couldn't take him seriously and ended up laughing him out of the country. It all meant that I could, just standing there, I could get that sense of history. Anyway... Here are a couple of people to talk about more recent experiences. First off is Laura and Matt from To Stay Wild. Hello, I'm Matt. And I'm Laura. From To Stay Wild. And today we're going to talk about um, some of our experiences travelling in Uzbekistan. So the reason we decided to go to Uzbekistan, we were in Central Asia anyway on a bit of long-term travel. We were in Kyrgyzstan and decided... Uzbekistan would be a good logical place to go afterwards because Kyrgyzstan, it's all about the nature, lots of trekking and mountains and things like that. Whereas Uzbekistan, most of the tourist attractions focus around architecture and civilization and history and things like that. So we thought it'd be quite a nice contrast. Coupled with that, it's got an easy e-visa application. So that was quite straightforward for us to get a 30-day visa. And apparently that's getting made even easier in the future. Yeah, it's visa-free now, I think, for over 45 countries in Uzbekistan. So it's definitely worth seeing if your country's on the list. Um, I think this part of the world's getting easier and easier to travel in, which is really exciting. We were in Uzbekistan in October of 2018. And just to give you an overview of weather, because it can get extremely hot in the summer um, in Uzbekistan. And very cold at winter. And very cold in winter. Um, but October for us was kind of the perfect contrast. It was warm and bright and sunny in the day. Um, but the evenings did get chilly. You did need a jacket or a down jacket or something just to keep you warm. Um, but it did make sleeping a lot easier than boiling to death in hostels and guest houses. Some of the days were a bit colder towards the end, but overall it was pretty good. So I definitely recommend October as a time to visit. Um, We were there for two weeks and we mostly just went to the Silk Road towns. So Tashkent, Samarkand, Bukhara and Kiva. And Kiva. Yeah, so our experiences with the locals, they were very friendly, um, always engaging, and that actually turned out to be one of the highlights for us. When we first arrived on the board in, where was it? I can't remember the name. We crossed the border from Osh in Kyrgyzstan into the border town in Uzbekistan, um, which is quite far out, really, from Tashkent. It's a good, is it seven hours on the train? Yeah. Yeah. And we, so yeah, we, we turned up, we didn't have any money, um, any Uzbek SOM, and turns out the trains weren't running 
that day because of the cotton harvest. So we were sort of doing a confused foreigner routine at the uh, train station <laughs> and um, two uh, young guys came up to us and um, they really helped us basically. One of them managed to sweet talk the woman selling the tickets to change our US dollars into SOM, which is highly illegal, but <laughs> we managed to get some currency. Yeah, we were really um, restricted with where we could get our money from. Apparently, it's one to bear in mind if you are going to Uz- Uzbekistan, they turn off their cash points on a Sunday. I don't know why. None of the locals could explain the reason why either. Um, but it meant that we couldn't use our card to extract any money from the ATM, which is how we usually get our first sort of round of um, currency in every country we go to. And MasterCard was a lot more difficult. We had real problems getting cash out with MasterCard. Visa was a lot easier. But on that note, apparently it's a lot easier than previous years because they've now got a 50,000 note, which means you're not carrying around kilos of cash. Yeah, you do end up with a lot of cash, so just bear that in mind. It doesn't usually fit in a standard uh, wallet. <laughs> yeah, so um, when we first main place we went to was Tashkent, it was a lot more developed than we thought it was going to be. And we didn't really have many expectations, did we? Yeah, it's a lot more developed than I thought. Um, it's quite a cool city, really, especially with the metro system. I know that's quite high on people's list of things to see and do yeah. in Tashkent and it was really fun to explore that. It's quite modern, it's got lots of coffee shops, it's got bars, it's got a very depressing zoo which I wouldn't recommend going to. We actually went there by mistake because we were planning on going to the botanical gardens. Which is next door um, but yeah don't go to the zoo it's awful, absolutely awful but the botanical gardens are really lovely and that's high on our list of recommendations for Tashkent. Um, the Silk Road towns were the highlight. Samarkand was a highlight for, for me. I actually celebrated my 30th birthday there. Um, with a good cake. With one of the best birthday cakes I've ever seen. And and the architecture is really, really impressive. It, yeah, it was absolutely breathtaking. Um, when we first got to Registan in um, Samarkand, it, yeah, it was amazing. Um, it, it really, really was a real highlight for us, actually, of the whole trip um, through Central Asia. Um, and then we sort of made our way through all the other Silk Road towns so next up was Bukhara yeah and we um, yeah it was kind of much of the same thing without sounding ignorant there was was a lot of impressive sites but um, to some extent it did get a little bit samey we called it tile fatigue Um, yeah the tiles are amazing but also incredibly similar Um, so you can get a little I guess complacent with what what amazing mosque you're looking at Mm. Um, I probably would recommend our route to do it the other way around and start in Kiva and go to Bukhara and work your way up to Samarkand because that was the most impressive set of mosques we probably saw the best one first yeah um, so I would recommend doing it the other way around if possible in terms of transport, um, the train transport was actually really good and you could get sleeper trains. Some of them were more modern than others, but it was pretty decent and affordable. We did get shared taxi as well between Samarkand and Kiva because, no, Bukhara, Bukhara Kiva. and Kiva because the trains don't run between them, which is another reason you should do it in reverse, maybe. Yeah. I guess the big question is, would we go back to Uzbekistan? Because we did feel in two weeks we saw pretty much all the historical sites however i think we would go back but for different reasons yeah so i think we definitely saw all the historic sites but there is more to see so if you're into the whole dark tourism thing you can go out um, really far west and see what remains of the aral sea and there's also i think going to be more in the way of community-based tourism as 
uh, tourism develops there. So they're really pushing it at the moment, hence all the ease, uh, easy visa uh, applications that are happening now. But so there's the Naratu Mountains, which we didn't get to, but we heard they were nice. And even just outside Tashkent, there's the Charvak Mountains and Chimgan Reservoir, which um, they we didn't get beautiful. to. They look beautiful. And we met a few people that had been um, and said it was a real highlight of Uzbekistan. Um, so I think we definitely need to go back and see that for ourselves. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for having us on your podcast. We really appreciate it. And yeah, bye. Bye. But to sum up Uzbekistan, I can't do any better than bring in Sophie Ibbotson from Maximum Exposure, who literally wrote the book on the country. She wrote the latest edition of the Brad Guide to Uzbekistan. Hello to the Barefoot Backpacker Tribe. My name is Sophie Ibbotson. I'm the author of the Brat Travel Guide to Uzbekistan and an advisor on tourism and investment in the country. I first visited Uzbekistan about 10 years ago, and I can honestly say that the country is completely unrecognisable today. In the last two years, there have been rapid and radical change. The death of former President Karimov was a real turning point for the country. It's kick-started um, a huge amount of growth, changes in the economy, changes in the um, politics, in diplomatic relationships, and the country has really accelerated in the past two years, and I would say very much so for the better. The attractions of Uzbekistan for tourists, in particular those with an adventurous mindset, are absolutely numerous. At a very basic level, there are the three famous Silk Road cities of uh, Samarkand, Bukhara and Kiva, all three of which are UNESCO World Heritage Sites. They are the archetypal cities of the Silk Road. You've got huge mosques, madrasas, palaces, fortresses, real fairy tale structures that are covered in magnificent mosaics of blue and turquoise, fantastic calligraphy, carvings, paintings, real jewels standing out from the desert. In particular, Bukhara and Kiva are very well preserved, the towns around these monuments, so you can walk through the streets and feel that you're in a living museum. The past is very much connected with the present. Beyond that, I'm a huge fan of the archaeological sites, and these actually get far fewer visitors than the, the architectural highlights. If you go down to Termiz, towards the Afghan border, there are phenomenal sites which were excavated in the 60s and 70s and really haven't been touched since. Um, they date back to the time of Alexander the Great when there were Greco-Bactrian settlements across Central Asia. And you can just imagine two, three thousand years ago, um, the people who would have lived here along the river plain, looking south towards Afghanistan, which then was far more uh, civilised and connected with the rest of the world, and also making use of the intercontinental trade that was passing through what is now Uzbekistan. Uzbekistan's got some natural wonders too. There are mountains in the east of the country, including actually some ski resorts, uh, which I'm hoping will continue to develop in the next few years so that you can ski quite seriously in Uzbekistan. There's excellent hiking, um, particularly in places like the Kizilkul Nuratel Biosphere Reserve and further south along the border with Tajikistan, um, some beautiful national parks to explore. The desert for me is always an enthralling place, partly because of the romantic ideas of the Silk Road. The reality, of course, would have been fairly different. I'm not sure that walking through the desert for weeks or months on end with camels for company, sleeping rough each night, would have been 
terribly comfortable. But at the time, it would have been the only way to see the world. And uh, the yurts, which you can sleep in today, the nomadic tents are certainly certainly quite comfortable. Recently, I, I travelled up to Nuratel and we were able to, to swim in the lake there, to ride camels and then to sleep out outside our yurts, in fact, um, beneath the stars because it was such a warm night. And sitting around the, the campfire, listening to people sing and occasionally trying to sing myself, you did feel transported to an earlier age. I mentioned that Uzbekistan is, is changing very fast and I would say for the better. Um, that's particularly true in the tourism sector. When I first went a decade ago, you still had to apply for a letter of invitation. Then that was once that was issued, you could apply for a visa. Um, and a few weeks later, if you were lucky, you'd be able to take your passport in and get it stamped into your passport. It was time-consuming, it was expensive, and there was no guarantee you would get a visa at all. Um, in fact, the first time I applied, it was never processed, so goodness knows what happened to that one. But the changes have come through. 2018, they introduced a e-visa system, so most nationalities can apply online. And now, beginning of 2019, President Mizuyoyev has announced that from the 1st of February, 45 more nationalities will have a visa waiver for Uzbekistan. So when I next travel probably in the next month or so, to Uzbekistan. For the first time, I won't need a visa. I'll be able to get on a flight just with my passport, show it when I arrive, get a stamp, and that'll be it. And that's a huge, huge step forward in reducing the amount of red tape and also the cost. It makes an attractive destination for last-minute travellers. Other changes I've seen, um, we've had a lot of uh, reform to the economy and to the financial system. And one of the great things about this for tourists is that the currency is no longer controlled. Up until two years ago, there was effectively a, a black market economy and a white market economy uh, running in parallel. And you would, as a tourist, often be changing your money on the black market, which nobody really wants to do. Um, now the, the black market and the white exchange rates are on par. The currency is no longer artificially controlled. So wherever you change your money, whether it's in the bank, whether it's in the hotel, you're going to get the same exchange rate. There's an increased number of ATMs and an increased number of places where you can pay by card, which again makes it much easier. The first time I went to Uzbekistan, I think the highest value note then was the 1,000 som, certainly the highest value in regular circulation, and that was about 30 cents, US cents in value. So you'd end up carrying around an entire bag of notes and having to count out hundreds at a time, even if you're just paying for a coffee. Now, not only can you access your money more easily through the ATMs and therefore you don't need to carry so much around with you, but the high value notes are in circulation, which makes it much, much easier. A lot of new hotels are being built in Uzbekistan. Um, the Hyatt opened a, a fantastic five star property in Tashkent recently, um, which is definitely the, the best hotel in the country now. Um, a lot of the other hotels, many of which were built in the Soviet era or the early 1990s, are being upgraded and new hotels seem to be opening every week. It doesn't matter whether you want to stay in a, a boutique hotel, a hostel, a family-run guest house, or a large, more sort of resort-style hotel. Uh, they are coming up all over the place. And as Samarkand is going to be hosting a, a very big conference in 2021, the accommodation options there are going to be completely transformed. I'm expecting in the next year or so that we're going to see a, a huge influx of international hotel chains, people like Marriott, like Holiday Inn, um, probably the Hilton chain, coming into Uzbekistan and opening uh, four and five star hotels that are international standard, um, good quality, but also reflect, I hope, 
a little bit of Uzbekistan's hospitality. The flights are also getting much, much easier to Uzbekistan. Um, from the UK, Uzbekistan Airways already flies twice a week from London Heathrow to Tashkent direct, um, which is very, very convenient. It means you no longer have to route via Turkey or, or via Russia. The airline has got new Dreamliners on order, which are going to be delivered this spring, and those are going to be serving the long-haul route, so it'll be much, much more comfortable to fly from London or from New York or from Tokyo or any of the other airports the airline serves. We're also expecting this summer that Uzbekistan Airways will start additional flights from another UK airport, which will mean not only are there an increased number of days you can fly direct during the week, but also that it will be convenient if you're coming from um, the Midlands or the north of England. Rather than having come down to London, you'll be able to fly from a regional airport. This will be particularly good for the uh, package groups which are going. So I know Saga Holidays, for example, has seen phenomenal interest in their Uzbekistan itinerary. In fact, I think it must be one of their most popular tours right now. It doesn't seem to matter how many dates they add, more and more people keep coming. Um, there are also some excellent tours on offer from people like Explore, uh, from Jules Verne, from Travel the Unknown, um, and also from Central Asia specialists, Calpac Travel and Steps Travel. Uzbekistan is the hottest destination for 2019. I can say that with hand on heart, um, and I, I hope in some small way I have been contributing to that. Not only has it been picked up in a lot of the hot lists for the year, but the readers of Wanderlust magazine have actually voted for Uzbekistan as their top emerging destination for 2019, which is a huge, huge triumph, particularly given that tourism development and tourism promotion in Uzbekistan really has only been happening in the past two years. So they've gone from nowhere, no visibility at all, to absolute top of the tree. The last thing that I want to say is if you like unusual destinations, if you want to see somewhere a little bit off the beaten track before it becomes hugely popular, you have got to go to Uzbekistan quickly. If you leave it for 18 months, two years, it will already be much, much more developed and far more people will have gone. The time to go is now. The spring is a beautiful time of year to travel. I highly recommend it. And Uzbekistan is still very, very affordable. You can fly for £430 return from London with Uzbekistan Airways, which is competitively priced. There's no visa charge at all. And when you get in-country, you can live very, very cheaply. The public transport is, is very good, particularly if you take the high-speed train, which links Tashkent, Samarkand and Bukhara and will be extended to Kiva by the end of the year. You can get around easily. Uzbeks are very, very friendly, will welcome you with open arms into their community and show you some of the fascinating culture that they have, not only the history, but also the living culture, their textile production, their food, their music, their dance, their theatre, all of the things which make it such a vibrant culture to explore. Well, that's just about all for this post. Next time, I hope to be talking about luggage, about what you pack and why and how much or little you're comfortable taking with you. Until then, make the best of the weather, and if you're feeling off-colour, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. I'm pretty bad at that sort of thing myself, so I'll understand perfectly if you don't. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Kirkby and Ashfield studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. Music in this episode was Walking Barefoot on Grass, bonus, by Kai Engel, 
which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes of this podcast will be available on your podcast service of choice, or alternatively, go to my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, I live on Twitter at rtwbarefoot, or email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com. Until next week, have safe journeys. Bye for now.